Mark chapter 15, the Christian faith started very small, as we'll see, with just a handful of believers when Jesus was crucified. Today, today those that study these things tell us that roughly 170,000 people a day around the world profess faith in Christ. And the number of Christians, it may very much surprise you, over the past 110 years, the number of those who claim to be Christians in the world has quadrupled. In 1910, there were about 600 million people who claimed to be Christian. Today, that's gone from 600 million to 2 billion who profess to be Christians today. And although most of those are in Europe and in the Americas, at least those are the places where people claim to be Christians, uh, the most rapid growth is in Asia and the Pacific and also in Sub-Saharan Africa. More people profess to be Christians best we can determine um, in China than all the whole population of the United States. So I want us to see here the beginnings, the beginnings of this movement as we look at Mark chapter 15 and the death of Jesus following this, beginning in verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. In entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. When we think of the crucifixion of Jesus, we typically think of spectators who would have been there involved with that, like the Roman guards, the Roman centurions. We think of the criminals who were crucified on either side of him. We think of the soldiers at the foot of the cross who gambled for his clothing. We may think of the religious leaders who shouted insults at him with such statements as he saved others, let him save himself. 
If you are the Son of God, come down off that cross. But Mark chooses to focus on other spectators. He focuses on these women, and he focuses on Joseph of Arimathea. The women, Mark tells us, were there when Jesus died, and they saw it all. They witnessed his death from a distance. But they were not strangers to Jesus. Verse 41 says they had cared for his needs and those of the disciples in Galilee. So they watch Jesus die a horrible death. The disciples had fled for their lives. But these women stayed close enough to be observers even to his death. Now why would Mark mention them here? Why would he choose to focus as it was as it was on these women. Well, first, when Mark says they were looking on from a distance, he uses a term that means careful scrutiny. It's like if you, you know, a big crowd would have been there, like if you go to a football game and you're looking for a particular player, though there may be, you know, thousands of people, including the stands, you're, you're scrutinizing, you're looking at one particular person. Though they were far off, they were the word that's used here is they were looking closely at what happened. And Mark mentions that. And he, he's saying that because he wants the reader to know that these women were firsthand eyewitnesses to what was happening. And they were not lying about what had happened. They saw it. And he lets us know that they saw where he was buried. One of the early arguments against the resurrection was that these women went to the wrong tomb on that first Easter morning. And they found an empty tomb, and they thought, well, Jesus is risen. And they had just gone to the wrong place. So Mark lets us know for sure, no, they knew exactly where that tomb was. Secondly, the second reason I think he mentions the women, and this helps us today, is that in those days, this is the way it was, the testimony of a woman was not admitted as evidence in a court. It was Mark. And if he was trying to make the account seem more believable or to exaggerate it or to make skeptics accepted, he would not have used women as witnesses. He would have used men. And so he, by stating, by him stating that women were the witnesses, it gives us trust in the historicity and the reliability of the biblical account. And Mark will come back to the women in a few later verses. Now Joseph of Arimathea mentions him in verses 42 to 46. Mark doesn't tell us a lot about this man, but he, he tells us enough to where someone reading Mark's gospel at that time in history could have found Joseph and interviewed him. Mark's gospel was written between 60 AD and 70 AD. So roughly about 30 years after these events took place. And we may think, oh, 30 years? Can people remember back 30 years? They think back to 1990, many of us, and we can recall plenty of things. Some of us are losing it, and I can still recall uh, from 1990. So it wasn't that long ago from you think as far as recalling things that happened. And you, they could have gone. Uh, he's mentioning names, places. Joseph of Arimathea, and he says about him in verse 43, he was a respected member of the council. What council? Well, the very council that had condemned Jesus to die, the Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish Supreme Court of the day. Now, our Supreme Court has nine justices. The Sanhedrin <coughs> had 70. They, 70, and they were like the Supreme Court over all the Jewish people around the world. 
And when they had brought Jesus before them, you know what this tells us? They were not a unified court in their decision. It was a split decision. Now, those who were opposed to Jesus were the majority, but Joseph was one of those. And it lets us know that he would have been opposed to what had happened. So Mark mentions that he gathered up his courage and he goes before Pilate, the Roman governor, who carried out the death sentence. And, it, you know, he's, he's courageous to go before the very man that had condemned Jesus to die and he asked for his body. We wonder why he did that. Well, when a person was crucified, typically the Romans did not release their bodies back to their families or friends for burial. Instead, they would take the body and they would throw it on the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem called Gehenna. So they took the body and they, they threw it there. They were making a statement. Every day we're exposed now to images of warfare that people didn't see in the past, not on television anyway. And it's noted when in Ukraine when these civilians, are, their bodies are left or they're buried in shallow graves or uh, tortured, and we're thinking that's, that's almost like making a statement. The Romans were definitely making a statement. And that is, if you commit crimes like this against the state, this is what will happen. So in some cases, they didn't even take the bodies off the crosses. They left the bodies on the crosses as food for vultures and would remain there until they basically um, wasn't anything left as a stark reminder of those kinds of crimes. But in this case, Joseph of Arimathea comes, requests the body. It was Jewish to the Jewish customs. Of course, he was Jewish. You needed to bury someone. So he requests the body, and Pilate allows him to take it. Now, verse 43 tells us that when he went to Pilate, uh, Pilate was surprised to find out Jesus had died so quickly because sometimes a crucified criminal could live two or three days. They ultimately died from suffocation, from not being able to push themselves up, and they died from blood loss, dehydration, and so forth, and hunger. But hearing that Jesus is dead from the soldier, Pilate says, yeah, you can take the body. Now, we know Jesus died about 3 p.m. on Friday, and this, the timing is very important here. I'll explain it. The Jewish Sabbath would begin at sundown, on Friday. So Joseph had limited time. So he, he gets the body. He doesn't have time to anoint the body, but he buys a shroud and he wraps the body in a shroud and he put, places it in this, this tomb that had been hewn out of, of rock and puts a large stone in front of it, in front of the door of the tomb. So like, even though he took great pains to do what he could with the limited time, he did not have time to anoint the body before sunset when the Jewish Sabbath began and you were not supposed to do something like that then. And that's why the women, having seen all this, bought spices for that Sunday morning and went to the tomb. So days, the Sabbath was from evening to evening. Now, I joke with or first service, somebody asked me before the service, Chip, taxes are due tomorrow. Is it okay to do your taxes on Sunday? And I was thinking of this passage, but I said, well, if you wait till after dark, 
which now is about 1 a.m., you know, so you'll be in the Monday anyway. By the time it's dark, it's tomorrow, I guess. Why does Mark draw our attention to all of these things? It's because of the historical nature of the Christian faith. Our faith is rooted in history. You can't separate it from history. It rises or falls. It stands on history, the history of the life of Jesus, the birth, the life, the crucifixion, his death, the resurrection. If you take away those events, you no longer have Christianity. That's not true of most other religions. I mean, if you can prove that Confucius didn't live or that the Buddha didn't live or that Muhammad never existed, that would not affect those religions one bit. And that is because those people are not essential to the teachings of those religions. Those are primarily ethical and philosophical systems, but Christianity is different. If Jesus did not live, die, be raised from the dead, there is no true Christian faith. And that's why the Apostle Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, drop all this talk about forgiveness of sins and eternal life, that's a waste of time. And he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, in other words, if he did not raise, was not raised from the grave, we are to be pitied more than, than all people. They should look at, people should look at Christians and say, boy, I feel sorry for them. That is a pitiful group of people. Well, when the women showed up in chapter 16, verse 1, they arrive at the tomb. As they're going there, they're discussing how we're going to move the stone away. Large stone, heavy stone, they were put there to keep animals out, keep intruders out, not to keep people in. But that doesn't stop them, and when they get there, lo and behold, the stone's been moved. Verse 4 tells us they're surprised then. And then in verse 5, it says they enter the, the tomb and they see a young man who's, who's sitting there, and he's, he's dressed in white. That, that's important. Luke tells us the clothes were like lightning. And he points out where the body had been. They had seen all this. Remember, they had watched closely 36 hours before. He wants them to see. He wants them to be certain. The body was there. Now it's gone. And he tells them to go find the disciples and Peter and remind them, Jesus said he'd go before you into Galilee. But he's risen from the grave. Now here in the English Standard Version, it says they are amazed. The other translations I looked at said they were terrified. They're terrified. What are some lessons we can learn here? Well, our, our faith, as I just mentioned, has a historical basis. It's reasonable. The Christian faith is reasonable. You can't prove it completely. You can't prove anything from history totally. Uh, you, you can look at where do things lead? What's reasonable about it? And ours is a reasonable faith. And people have tried to take the Bible and, and uh, tear it apart, and it's not like any other book. It's been dissected and studied like no other book has. And you can rest your faith on it. Bernard Ram talks about how the Bible has outlasted its critics. I love this quotation from him. A thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded, the funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, and the committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. The French writer and philosopher Voltaire was a master of satire, and he lived from the late 1600s, 1694 to 1778, so he lived a long life, died in his 80s. 
He was a skeptic. He believed Christianity had no, was not reasonable. It had no basis for belief. And he mocked it, and he used his satire against it. He would have been in very good company with modern atheist writers like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens. But he predicted that Christianity would become extinct within uh, 50 years and that no one would even read the Bible within 100 years. And yet, only 50 years after his death, a National Bible Society used Voltaire's house and his printing press to print Bibles and send them out all over the world. So what is the gospel? This past week, I noticed things popping up on social media, and yeah, I know how to turn on a computer. I spend most of my life and about uh, the gospel in 60 seconds. And there were videos on YouTube about, watch this video, here's this well-known Bible teacher, and he gives the essence of the gospel in 60 seconds. So I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, and I began looking up uh, various presentations of the gospel. I put the gospel in 60 seconds, and all these sites show up. And I thought, well, I'll, that's a good idea. I'll write my own. But then I lost, but the more I read, I thought, I can't do this. I can't do it like they're doing it. So I want to read you the best one I found. There's no greater message to be heard than that which we call the gospel. But as important as that is, it is often given to massive distortions or oversimplifications. People think they're preaching the gospel to you when they tell you you can have a purpose in life, you can have meaning in your life, or you can have a personal relationship with Christ. All of these things are true, and they're all important, but they don't get to the heart of the gospel. The gospel is called the good news because it addresses the most serious problem that you and I have as human beings, and that problem is simply this. God is holy, and he is just, and I am not. And at the end of my life, I'm going to stand before a just and holy God, and I'll be judged. And I'll be judged either on the basis of my own righteousness or the lack of it or the righteousness of another. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness, of perfect obedience to God, not for his own well-being, but for his people. He has done for me what I couldn't possibly do for myself. But not only has he lived that life of perfect obedience, he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the justice and the righteousness of God. The great misconception in our day is this, that God isn't concerned to protect his own integrity, that he's kind of a wishy-washy deity who just waves a wand of forgiveness over everybody. No, for God to forgive you is a very costly matter. It costs the sacrifice of his own son. So valuable that that sacrifice that God pronounced, it valuable by raising him from the dead so that Christ died for us. He was raised for our justification. So the gospel is something objective. It is a message of who Jesus is and what he did, but it's also subjective. How are the benefits of Jesus subjectively appropriated to us? How do I get them? The Bible makes it clear that we are justified not by our own works, not by our own efforts, not by our own deeds, but by faith and by faith alone. The only way you can receive the benefits of Christ's life and death is by putting your trust in him and in him alone. You do that, and you're declared just by God. You're adopted into his family. You're forgiven of all your sins, and you have begun your pilgrimage for eternity. Preach it, R.C. Sproul.
That's where it came from. Let's pray together. Father, our hope for this life and the next, our only comfort and hope and in death is the life, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus to your right hand where he intercedes for us at this very moment. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.